Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning, and welcome to our brand new major series for this ministry year out of the book of Revelation. It was 1992, I think. I was in Seville, Spain, uh, and I ended up at the World Expo. And that year, there was all this conversation about the European Union coming into being. And actually, there was this huge booth I remember going. They were handing out fake currency, I still have it, of what the euro would look like. And I remember being in a conversation with my Christian friends, because you might know the European Union came into existence the following year. And they were like, this is it. The end of times is here. There's a new Rome. All the European unions are, uh, nations are coming into a new union. There's going to be the Antichrist is coming. We need to get ready. Well, then I remember going to a local Pentecostal church, actually in this area. It was during one of the Gulf Wars, and I remember a guy named Grant Jeffrey. He'd written a book, and he was talking about how all these military equipments are similar to what we see in Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. The Black Hawk is like a flying scorpion, and we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And then all I need to say is, left behind anyone? Maybe we should sing the song from R.E.M. It's the end of the world, as we know it, and I feel fine. Well... What do you do with all this? Well, let's dive in. Whether you're a seeker, skeptic, not a Christian from another faith, or a long-term Christian or just become one, God is going to speak. First of all, background to the book. What does the word revelation mean? And by the way, it's not revelations. It's revelation. It's one. It simply means unveiling or disclosing. So then we need to ask ourselves the question, well, what's being unveiled or disclosed? We're going to get there. This book also is in the category of prophecy. Now, there's two meanings to the word prophecy, a declaration of what is true now, and also foretelling of what's going to come. So you have forthtelling and foretelling, and actually both of these apply because this letter was written. It tells the truth actually of what has happened, is happening, and also what will happen. Most of us, especially in church circles, when we think about the book of Revelation, we think always what's coming next, the future, the future, but actually much of this letter has happened or is happening. I could put it this way. The book of Revelation is given for three reasons. First, it's given to a real group of local churches to walk closer with Jesus 2,000 years ago. They're legit people. Second, it was given to this group of Christians under terrible persecution. And the reason why the book was given to them was to be faithful and not given to the spiritual, political, and religious culture of their own cities and Rome itself, no matter the cost. Who would they worship? Who would they live for? Who would they give to? And in the middle of real pressure and growing hostility towards Jesus' people, Jesus comes and he inspects to speak to his churches. He inspects them and speaks to them and says, don't give in. By the way, I just want to pause as we get going. And I want to give some background to what our ancestors were really going through. The persecution taking place 2,000 years ago at this moment was really bad. Listen to how another person summarizes it. In the early years, Rome, the great imperial power, didn't take much notice of what they just saw as another strange Jewish sect called the Way or Christianity. By the time the letter of Revelation is given, the situation has changed big time. After about 60 AD, the Roman authorities viewed Christianity as something that needed to be suppressed. In 64 AD, a fire broke out in Rome. And the Emperor Nero avoided blame by accusing and then blaming and persecuting Christians for that fire. Now, Nero, the person right, was on the mad side of dysfunctional, but subsequently, more sane emperors continued his work, but they did it officially in a more effective manner. Now, I want you to hear this. For the next 250 years, 
Christianity had no legal right to exist. 250 years. Now, when John was 90, an emperor came to power named Domitian. He reigns from about 81 to 96 AD. He is the first emperor to fully deify himself. And during his lifetime, he assumed, everyone ready? The title, Lord and God. The emperor Domitian saw himself as an absolute ruler and took pride in being called Master, Lord, and God. He was so vain, he actually changed September and October to be named after himself. The Senate was almost stripped of all of its power. He executed multiple senators and imperial officers for the most trivial of events. The paranoia was so strong that he would actually send informants out everywhere. He told his guards to cut people's hands off, even burn their genitals to get information out of them. And he was so obsessed about being assassinated that he lined the gallery where he took his daily walk with highly polished moonstone so he could see the reflection behind himself and not be killed. During all this craziness, Christianity was exploding and they would not confess to mission as Lord and God. And so at that moment, the persecution began again. And one of the things that happened is John, the Apostle John, is now sent into exile. So number one, given to a real group of churches. Number two, to help with persecution, to persevere. And third, revelation is given to the global church to show where history ends. I love Eugene Peterson's little book, Reversed Thunder, where he says, you want to know what this letter is about? Well, it's about God's famous last words. It's God's last words on scripture, the church, worship, evil, prayer, witnessing, politics, judgment, salvation, heaven. But most importantly, it's God's last word, his disclosure about one person, Jesus. This letter is written by Jesus. It's about Jesus. He's the agent and also the content of this grand letter. And the takeaway for these battered and attacked followers of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and the light of the risen Jesus is that God will not be mocked. God wins for them. God wins in the end. And all the people and all the systems that seem so much stronger in the moment will be broken and will bow at the foot of Jesus. The Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the author of history, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, not Caesar. See, that is why Revelation was given and written. Another really important thing, especially if you've got church history, is, as one of my mentors, Daryl Johnson, wrote, he says, look, it's important to emphasize at the beginning of our journey through this book that this is a series of windows, a series of visions. This does not progress in some chronological order. That is, the events depicted in the images are not presented in the order in which they happen historically. They're just presented in the way, in the order that John saw them. Okay, this matters so much. Everyone lean in. If you're taking notes, write this down. John, if you read Revelation cover to cover, says that he saw something 40 times. 32 times he heard something. And 19 times he tells his audience, that's us, look. So every time you hear, I saw, I looked, or you must look, or I heard, this is when you lean in. So let's start at the beginning of the end, the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Now, John is the one who received the message. Let's just do this for some of our audience. John was at first a follower of John the Baptist. 
Then John the Baptist says, actually, you need to follow Jesus. And then Jesus comes along and calls John to himself. John follows Jesus. Over three years, John was at everything. He was Jesus' closest friend. He walked with him. He saw all he did. He was there at the transfiguration, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the casting of legion, like all of it. John was there. John was there when Jesus died. Actually, it says that John held Mary, Jesus' mom, as Jesus bled out. He was there when Jesus came back to life, and he was actually there when Jesus ascended to heaven. Now, from that moment of ascension, of course, the message of Jesus exploded. And over many years, all sorts of amazing things and terrible things happened. All ten of the apostles were murdered, except John. John is the only one to see all of it before he dies. Now, by this moment, John has written the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He's living in Ephesus. He's building up that church. But near the end of his life, the Roman Empire turned even more again against the followers of Jesus. And so he gets exiled at 90 years old to this little island called Patmos. And this is where our story begins. Revelation 1-1. Got a Bible? Turn there. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who testifies <coughs> to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Okay, let's start here. This is the only book where there's a guaranteed blessing if you not just read it, but you take it to heart. So saying to church, to you listening from other churches, because I know many of you are, to you again who are seekers or skeptics or from another faith or no faith at all or you're spiritual but not Christian, there is a guaranteed blessing from God if you don't just read the letter, but actually you bring the letter's message into the center of who you are. Blessing comes after belief, but the blessing is guaranteed if you do it. Okay, let's address the first huge elephant in the room. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near. Another way of putting this is the end is here. The end is coming. And we're like, uh, really? Uh, the time is near. Okay, the end is near. Jesus is coming back soon, question mark. It's almost like we want to say to God, God, can you count? I mean, it's 2021 based on when Jesus is around. So that's 2000 years plus. So it doesn't sound like the end is near to me. Okay, let's unpack this. Number one, first, the Bible says to God, one day is like a thousand years. But there's more than that. See, the end is always connected to who's just on the other side of the door. See that word close or the time is near? In Greek, it means impending. Not immediate. Impending, not immediate. Second, let's just talk about that phrase, the end is near, or what we would call the end times. Like I said at the beginning of our time together, every time there's another major event, like COVID as an example, all sorts of books and podcasts are written saying, this is it, this is it, he's coming. Okay, a few things. Yes, of course we're closer to the end because we're closer because there have been more years that have passed. No argument. But we've been in the end times for 2,000 years, everyone. Since Jesus was born, 
in God's view, that whole time, the one we're living in right now, the last age, the end times, the last epoch, is the now before the not yet. The Bible is not mysterious or closed about this at all. We've been in the last times for 2,000 years. 1 Peter 1.20, Peter writes to his churches, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. That was like 65 AD. Oh, Hebrews 1-2, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom God appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Even at the birth of the church, it's the story of Pentecost, right? When every single follower suddenly is given the Holy Spirit and every Christian ever since has been given the Holy Spirit at conversion. As Peter is explaining the tongues and the fire in the upper room, he quotes Joel chapter 2 as proof of what was taking place. And listen to what he said. This is the very first Christian sermon ever preached. Acts 2.17. In the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Sons, daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. See, we've been in the last days since Christmas, the very first Christmas. So be so careful when you hear people online and on YouTube saying, this is it, this is it. We're now entering the last days. No, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Okay, this next part matters too. The letter of Revelation was written to real people, real Christians like us. And we need to remember they're the original audience and actually they would have understood, understood much of this. Verse 4 reads like this. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Okay, back in May and June of 2017, we did a whole eight-week series on chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation, specifically focusing on the seven churches that John is referring to. Now, one of my good friends, Daryl Johnson, and one of my mentors is going to speak to these two chapters, chapter 2 and 3 specifically, in an overall way in about two weeks. But I just want to invite you, you can go back and listen to that amazing series where Jesus talks to each local church and what it means for you and us today. So think about it like this. That series is going to fit into the series we're doing today. Now notice, the very first thing that God says to those seven churches, to those Christians, is this. He says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. The very thing that the book of Revelation starts with, he points to, he assures them of, is their salvation. We've done this in 2nd and 3rd John and in 1st Timothy and 2nd Second Timothy, sorry. Grace and undeserved mercy is given to you. Peace, shalom, a restored relationship between you and God. This is the essence of salvation. Like I've preached again and again, you can't earn salvation, you can't achieve it, you don't deserve it, you can't seduce it, can't buy it. You, you, it's just given. Grace and peace is given. The very first thing that early Christians are under persecution here is that they still have grace and they have peace with God. But then notice who gives it. God in his fullness. Grace and peace to you from him, that's God the Father, who was and is and is to come, and from the seven spirits before God's throne, and from Jesus Christ. Notice the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Okay, let me unpack this. God the Father is described as the one who is, was, and is to come. This is a simple way of saying God is. God is eternal. He existed in the past. He was. He exists right now. He is. He'll exist in the future. He is to come. God is forever because God is actually outside of time and space. 
because he invented time and space. Now, if you look down at verse 8, this is repeated again about God, but a little bit more is added. God himself says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord Almighty, or Lord God, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Now, Alpha and Omega is the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet. So if you're an English speaker, I know uh, many of us are, this would be like me saying God is the A and the Z, or if you're American, Z, but we'll forgive you. So I'm before, I'm during, and I'm after. And also he says, I'm almighty. This means God is all powerful. He's the God of angel armies. There's no one like him. He's all powerful and all present. So let me read this again. Grace and peace to all Christians from the one who was and is and is to come and from the seven spirits before God's throne and from Jesus Christ. Okay, the seven spirits of God in front of a throne. What's up with that? Okay, seven is a reference to perfection. And this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, seven means perfect, holy, and all present. We see this later in Revelation 5, 6. It's talking about Jesus. He says, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. See, the Holy Spirit is always connected to Jesus, the lamb. That's why in the book of John, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Christ. So watch this. You've got the, God the Father, who was and is and is to come, and his throne. You have the Holy Spirit, and then you have Jesus Christ. And grace and peace, notice, comes from all three. This is pointing to the reality that God is one, yet three, the Trinity. It was Karl Barth that simply said these words, the doctrine of the Trinity is what basically distinguished the Christian doctrine of God as Christian. This isn't just how we talk about God or to God. This is actually how we distinguish wrong versions of God from actually true versions. This is the red line in Christian faith between falseness and truth. When I did a series on the Trinity before, I just used this definition. Within God's own mysterious being, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The designations are just the ways in which God is God. And within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods or three parts of God, but co-equally and co-eternally God. So, so you've got God at the center of the revelation, reminding us of our amazing salvation, but never forget John's focus. Never forget actually the Spirit's focus and God the Father's focus. The letter of Revelation, the disclosure, is actually specifically about Jesus because he's the one that reveals everything. He gives the letter, and actually the letter's about him. That's why John now stops under the inspiration of God's Spirit and takes so much time to tell us who the real Jesus is and what he's given to us if you are a follower of Jesus or what he's offering you if you're not a follower of Jesus yet. So, so some people are like, I want to know who Jesus is. Ready? You're going to know who Jesus is right now. Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory, power forever and ever. And it says amen. You can say amen. Okay, you want to know who Jesus is? This is the real Jesus. Who's Jesus? First thing, Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not his last name. Jesus is the anointed one, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. He's the king of the Jews. All of the Old Testament was written to prepare the world for Jesus. That's what Christ means. Jesus is the faithful witness. He is truth and he does not lie. 
Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Okay, this so important. Jesus, everyone, is alive. Jesus physically is risen from the dead. And as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so the same will happen to us who know him. Spring will be the permanent state. As I've preached so many times before, let me do it again. Since Jesus rose from the dead, atheism, it's answered. Since Jesus rose from the dead, agnosticism, resolved. Since Jesus rose from the dead, every religion on earth has to reevaluate what they claim because it's true, he rose. Since Jesus rose from the dead, death is answered. We know what actually lies beyond the grave because someone actually went there and came back and told us. Since Jesus rose from the dead, the human family doesn't need to know, is God involved? What is he like? Is, does he care? Since Jesus rose from the dead, you can meet God personally. Since Jesus rose from the dead, there's purpose that can be given in life more than money or education or sexual expression or power or being moral or religious. And since Jesus rose from the dead, real important, the coffin or the cremation fire is not your end. It's interesting, Paul uses this exact phrase in Colossians 1.18. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy, okay? So here's what's important. Jesus' resurrection is a declaration that the great enemies that actually attack us as the human family have been overcome. He's forgiven sin, overcome. He's overcome death. Actually, your funeral is not gonna be the end. You're gonna come back to life like he came back to life. But not only that, he also overcame the demonic powers. That's why in Colossians 2.15, Paul, reflecting on the cross and the resurrection, says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Disarm means they've lost their importance and power, and triumph means that actually they don't have the final say. But what's really interesting is it's not just the spiritual powers that Jesus has overcome. Did you notice it? It says here in Revelation 1 that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of all the earth. Oh, okay. So Jesus is king. Jesus is sovereign. He is above every leader. I want to work it out this way. Who will Buddha and Muhammad and Gandhi and Napoleon and Hitler stand before? Who's Trump and Biden and Martin Luther King Jr. and Albert Einstein and Abraham Lincoln and Moses and Nelson Mandela and Plato and Isaac Newton, Leonardo da Vinci, Tesla, Ashok of India, Karl Marx, Darwin, Steve Jobs, fill in the blank of every famous person you know, good or bad, and also fill in the blank of every person you know, and then think about the billions of people of unknown people, who is ever going to stand, for at the end, stand before at the end of time? Jesus. Jesus. That's why it says in Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, okay, that's who he is. And then John is quick to remind us of what he's done. He unfolds the grace and peace part. He says, what has God done for us, rebellion, lost, broken, spiritually dead human beings? Oh, right. What has this Jesus done for us? Here it is. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch it? Loves us. Not loved us. Not going to love us. Loves us. And how do you know this is true? How do you know that that little song, Jesus loves me, this I know, is true, comforting, and real? 
Because Jesus, if you're a Christian and have accepted him, has freed you of your sin by his blood. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 3.25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, informed trust. So I just want to do this again. Let this sink in. God gave Jesus over. Before the beginning of time, God within himself decided to give himself for our sakes. Salvation that is free cost heaven everything. God gave Jesus up and over to deal with our sins. So Good Friday, the terrible events that took place, the death of Jesus was the very plan all along for God to bring deliverance to the world. And as I've addressed so many times, is this some weird, terrible cosmic view of child abuse? No. God within himself so loved the world that he sent himself. Jesus loved the idea of coming to save us. And of course, the Father sent him, the Spirit shows us. Not only did that act expose perfect holiness to sin, but Jesus became and took on our sin when he became a sacrifice of an atonement. This is where this old English word propitiation comes from. In the Old Testament, when a lamb was slaughtered, the blood would be sort of sprinkled on this thing called the mercy seat to cover. In other words, let me put it in a modern way. Jesus takes the bullet we deserve. Jesus pays off a mortgage that we owe and we can never pay off. He takes our place. And then out of that, Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests. Do you notice every Christian's a priest? By the way, this is revolutionary. This started all the way back in the time of Moses. When God formed the Jewish people in the Exodus, this is what God said to them in Exodus 19.6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. And then, if you come all the way to Peter's time, Peter now talking about the church, the church now takes that role globally. 1 Peter 2.9, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So you are the new, if you're a Christian, you're part of the new permanent spiritual nation, not based on ethnicity or ethnic nationality or geographical boundaries, but on your and connected to your relationship with Jesus. You are chosen, you're elected, you're called, you're predestined, you're foreknown. As Jesus was chosen, you were chosen. And we're all royal priests, which means you can approach the king and serve the king directly. We get to be actually entering into God's presence. We get to choose to obey, choose to be holy, choose to worship God, and we have access to him directly. And God has made us into, notice it, one holy nation. See, from heaven's view, there's only one church. There's only one house. There's only one temple, one nation, one access. So Jesus loves us. This I know, or the Bible tells me so. And Jesus has freed us. And Jesus has established us, and Jesus has given all of us, no matter skin color, background, gender, or educational, he's given us all the same access to God, to know him, to worship, to serve. That's why that old song is so good, what a friend we have in Jesus. But he's not done. Then John is taken a little farther when he says this. Look, oh, there it is. Everyone stop. There is the first time we're commanded to look. So, verse 7, look. Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Jesus, even those who pierce Jesus, and all the people of the earth will mourn because of Jesus. So shall it be. Amen. That's a way of saying it is true. Now, I just want to camp here for a moment. Even those who pierced him, 
Can you imagine on Judgment Day the Jewish leaders that had set up Jesus and Pilate and the crowds and the Roman soldiers will suddenly, with utter fear at resurrection, realize who they mocked, who they tortured, who they had beaten, who they had pierced? But not just them. Everyone's going to mourn. Every atheist is going to suddenly realize there was a God that could have been known. Every Muslim is going to know that actually Jesus was not just prophet, but he was the son of God. Every Hindu is suddenly going to realize that there's only one God found in Jesus. Millions upon millions of so-called Christians that thought this faith was just inherited or this faith was about being nice and good and doing good works and that got you to heaven will suddenly mourn because they'll realize that actually they forfeited the work of Jesus for their own stuff. Billions of people who thought they could trust in rights, politics, sexual revolution, philosophy will mourn. Those who led amazing, blameless lives will realize they still needed a savior and they did not ask. And millions of more and billions more that lived dark and deep, dark lives will actually also realize there is a God who's perfect, who knows all, he's forgotten nothing and will judge. It's interesting, even at death now, this mourning is felt. Sir Thomas Scott, who was a famed Chancellor of England, on his deathbed said this, Until this moment I thought there was neither God nor hell. Now I know and feel that there is both. I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. Napoleon Bonaparte, as he lay dying, said these words, I die before my time. My body will be given back to the earth. Such is the fate of him who has been called the great Napoleon. Listen to this. What an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal kingdom of Christ. David Hume, the great atheist philosopher, literally as he was dying, cried out on his deathbed, I am in flames. One of the most painful is Thomas Paine, the leading atheistic writer in the American colonies. And as he lay dying, listen to his last words. He yelled out, stay with me, for God's sake, I cannot bear to be left alone. Oh, Lord, help me. Oh, God, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me hereafter? I would give worlds if I had them. And then he says this, that the age of reason, his book, had never been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Oh, Christ, help me. No, no, don't leave me. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me. I am on the edge of hell here alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been his agent. I am that one. See, here's where we need to begin. For us that trust in Jesus, not because we're better people, it's all about mercy. This is going to be homecoming. When Jesus comes with the clouds, we're finally going to see the one that we love and we've given to and sang to and and worship and denied ourselves for, like we're going to see him. But for the majority of humanity, it will be marked by mourning and loss and weeping. It says, look, Jesus is coming. Four times in the book of Revelation, it says Jesus is coming. Did you catch it? He is coming. Not he might be coming. We're not sure if he's coming. No, he's actually coming back. Jesus, the way to think about it, is on the other side of the door. He's at the door and he's on his way. Welcome to week one in the book of Revelation. There's a lot there, a lot to think about how to process this book, how how does it impact. But can I just say maybe this? If you're not a Christian today, or you're a Christian in name only, or you're in one of those categories, find mercy today. 
Will you face God in relationship through Christ at the end of time or without relationship? Listen to to, to these amazing words. Jesus offers physical resurrection, forgiveness, freedom from the fear, and the actual reality of death. He forgives all sins, and he's more powerful than incarnate evil. And he offers this grace and peace for free. See, on Judgment Day, either Jesus will be your Savior, your Lord, your brother, and your friend, or you'll face God, and you will have to stand in the gap for yourself without Jesus' blood, without his access, without his mercy, without his peace, without his covering. It's amazing that God even gave us a way back, and he has. But what do you do with this Jesus? Because what you do with him ripples into eternity. For some of us who are followers of Jesus, as we get going, remember, Jesus is returning. And actually, that truth is the source of our hope, but also should inspire us to holy fear. Not afraid we're losing our salvation, but right living. See, let me ask you this question. What Jesus do you know? Who do you think you're going to meet and give an account to, even as a Christian? Is that affecting how you live in this moment? Knowing we don't need to earn our salvation, knowing we've been given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures, and we have grace and peace, we should live in a different way. If the whole universe one day, someday is going to pay homage to this Jesus, right? Think about it, not just people, every system, Darwinism, communism, capitalism, like think about every major movement in history, all of it is going to lay itself down in front of Jesus. If the whole universe one day is going to worship Jesus, or at least submit, then we should get on with joyful worship and obedience today. Oh, church, I want to remind you as we get going, this is the one you're going to meet. This is the one you're going to give an account to, the risen one, the powerful one, Jesus the Christ. What a homecoming that's going to be. Our simple prayer as we end today is this, Lord Jesus Christ, Father and Spirit, would you encounter every person within the sound of my voice who is not a follower of Jesus, open their eyes to their sin, to their lostness, and the great love of Jesus so they can actually be saved. And for us who know Jesus, give us a fresh, profound glimpse of the risen Christ so we can have joy that this that the world ends right and also that we live a more holy life knowing he's the one we're going to meet. Our prayer is this. Would you disclose and reveal Jesus Christ to Sanctus Church and beyond? We lay down our expectations, our rights, and our wants of this book and pray that you would speak clearly to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll see you next week.